Um, we are currently doing a study we're calling Normal Christianity. Um, and the reason is because our church is in the midst of a boatload of changes. And I actually think that's a really good thing. It, for me personally, it's been super overwhelming. Uh, and you guys will experience that overwhelmingness in the weeks to come, no doubt. Uh, but it's a good thing because after a year like last year, I think we're all looking for some change. Not only that, but the changes that we're looking at are not completely different directions. It's just recognizing the greatest and best things God's been doing in our church, recognizing the places that have been the most fruitful, that we're the most excited about, and just going all in. Um, you know, we've been, we've been testing the waters of the vision God has given us for years. We're about six years into being as a church, um, but now we're starting to get confident in the, in the way the Lord is leading us and the shape that he's given for our church to be, and so we're pressing into that, and we wanted to take a month just to look at what that could look like. And we we're doing it with the series we're calling Normal Christianity. And the reason I'm calling it Normal Christianity is because we have this tendency to create distance between us and Christianity. And so if you were here last week, uh, Matt's message was, this is the life. And the Christian life is one that we live here and now. And the expectation we have for eternal life, for heaven, for the fact that God is returning and going to set things right, doesn't nullify this life. It actually inspires it, right? And so that's what I mean by normal Christianity. It's not just Christianity means life is to come. It means the life is right here, right now. In the same way, uh, we are the church is a recognition that oftentimes the church is something other than us. They are the church. This meeting is the church. The building is the church. Next week, we'll look at uh, your neighbor lives right next door, which is funny that we have to remind ourselves of that phenomenon, but we do. We have a tendency to think that the people I'm called to love are over there. They're far away. I have to find them. I have to seek them out. And then we'll finish with, uh, with the mission field is right here. Because that's the same way we feel about missions. We feel like we have to leave the country, get a passport, learn a language. And so as we go through this series, we'll anchor it as we always do in the Bible. We'll look at what the Bible says about these things. And we'll also be talking about some of these changes that are going on. Um, if you're curious, in February, we'll return to 1 Corinthians and, and go on our merry way working through the New Testament. So this morning, I'd like you all to open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. If you have a Bible, please open there. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, they're stuck right in the back of the pew nearby. You're welcome to pull them out uh, and use that one. Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. You'll find it in the New Testament. I think for all of us, there are some texts that are formative in our understanding of Christianity. They're anchor texts. Um, they don't just tell us about God. They become a lens through which we view other things about God. And this is one of those passages for me. It's one that I've constantly returned to over the years. That's constantly shaped um, my understanding of what the church is. It's shaped the way that our church runs here. Um, and it's been a place that's tremendously fruitful um, to explore, and I was surprised to find that outside of, the, outside of the very beginning of our church, when we worked through the book of Ephesians, I've never returned to it and talked to it, talked about it topically and tied it directly to our church, and so I'm excited to do so this morning. What I'd like to do is read the passage through, pray, and then press in deeper, and so we're going to pick up in verse 11, um, and we're going to read through verse 16. Now, verse 11 starts with the word, he, and that's referring to Jesus, just for context. Let's read it together. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ." So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. God, as we explore one of the great manifestos of the church that lays out the shape and contours of who we are as a church, I pray that you would shave away the sharp misunderstandings that we often have about these things, the things that we've inherited both from our culture inside the church and our culture outside the church. And I, help, I ask God, uh, by your grace, that we would become this church, that we would be transformed in this way. We thank you for your gift, your gifts, what you've given to us in the church, and we pray that we would utilize it to its full consequence, becoming more like you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing in this text, um, the book of Ephesians breaks very easily in two halves, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Um, and that's, that's not just numerically, but I mean content-wise. What he does in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is he lays out what exactly God has done in Jesus Christ. And in 4, 5, and 6, there's a therefore. Therefore, because God has done this, who are we to be? So notice what it says at the very beginning of chapter 4. Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. So the calling in which we've been called is chapters 1, 2, and 3, and the walking in a worthy manner is chapters 4, 5, and 6. In fact, if you were to look very deeply at the grammar of the book of Ephesians, you would discover that there are no, no imperative verbs in the first three chapters, no commands. And then you get to chapter 4, and if you're highlighting them, it just turns completely yellow. It goes all application, okay? So he's in the midst of this application, and he starts appropriately with the church. If you will, what Paul is answering here is, what is God's plan for transformation? What has God given the church so that they complete their mission? What is God doing now that Jesus has ascended, now that his work of salvation has been completed? What is he doing now and how? And the answer he gives here, and he starts it uh, in verse 7. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, and so what he says here is that Jesus didn't just die for us. He, through that death and through that resurrection, gave us each, all, every, a gift. And then he goes on and he unpacks that idea and effectively he says God's plan for making you, each of you, all of us, more like Jesus Christ is the church. That's the plan. Okay. Now, the word church never occurs here. In fact, the word church is relatively irregular, un, uh, uh, unspoken in the New Testament. We do find it, but most of the time it's just referential to this church, to that church, etc., and because of that, it's easy for um, these false ideas of what church is to creep in based on normal, modern usage. And so when you say, I'm going to church, or I left my Bible at church, right? Oftentimes, the way we use the word church in modern English thinks of the church as an event, right? It fits in the confines of an hour and a half, once a week service, or as a building, or sometimes it refers to the leaders of the organization. So you should talk to my church if you need help, right? All of those are a misunderstanding. The word for church just means a group of people. It's very vague. And it, the Greek word ekklesia, oftentimes um, preachers like to point out that it's the called out ones, like we've been summoned. And that, that's a true idea, but it's a bad etymology. It's a bad understanding. And I'll, I'll just prove this in one way, okay? In Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is in Ephesus and there is an angry mob. And guess what that angry mob is in the Greek? It's an ekklesia, okay? What's called them to the streets is their anger, okay? There's something they have in common. They're now a mass of people, but that's the important thing. The Greek word for church just means people, a group of people that share something in, in common.
okay? Now, if you read the passage that we're looking at this morning carefully, you'll, no surprise, find the word over and over again, we. That's the church, okay? Now, notice what he says about this, going back to verse 11. He, speaking of Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so what he says here is that God has given, not just, as he says back in verse 8, gifts to each individual that makes up the church, but gifts, as in particular people, to equip the church. And there's five of them listed here. Some commentators would reduce that to four, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But it's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, the reason why some commentators believe that's four is because in the Greek, it's apostles, the little particle N, prophets, N, evangelists, N, pastors, chi, the Greek word for and, teachers. And so those last two are lumped together, and it may be pastors and teachers as a single category. But notice this morning, without having to parse each one of these words, notice what they have in common. Each and every one of these persons has a word-based ministry. Okay? The apostles were the witnesses of Jesus Christ who spoke on his behalf. The prophets are those who spoke for God, who gave us our Old and New Testament, who gave us the word itself. The evangelists are those who proclaim the good news that God has sent his son to die for us and invite us into a relationship with him. Uh, pastors and teachers are both focused on word gifts. Okay, But here's where it gets important. What we see here is that there is an organization to, to the church, that there are leaders, and they're God-given leaders. God calls pastors and teachers. Look at um, Acts chapter 19, sorry, Acts chapter 20, where Paul is talking with the Ephesian elders, and he says, shepherd the flock to which you were called to. Okay? These leaders are called by God, they're equipped by God, and they're given to the church for a reason. Okay? Now, I probably haven't said anything surprising so far, but here's where it gets really important. Because what Paul says in the, next, uh, in the, in the rest of this verse is easily missable. In fact, okay? forgive me for geeking out, or geeking out on punctuation, but for just a second... Let me explain something to you, okay? Greek, which is what the New Testament was written into, is a punctuation-free language. There's no exclamation marks, there's no periods, there's no commas or semicolons. Greek is just written, in fact, it's not always even written with spaces, okay? And so sometimes, in translating it into other languages, including English, there's a little bit of ambiguity on how to do the things that punctuation usually does, okay? Um, here is a place where that actually matters. Because if you look at old translations and old understandings of this passage, they would read it this way. And I'll try and express the commas with my pauses, and then I'll unpack it. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay? So the way that this passage used to be read, specifically in the Catholic tradition, was that these leaders have three roles, three jobs. They're to equip the saints, they're to do the ministry, and they're to build up the body. Okay? Now, there's an implied understanding in that that is different than Paul's point here. Okay? When you leave that comma in there and it becomes not equip the saints for the ministry, but equip the saints and given them for the ministry, we have two very different concepts. Okay? One implies that the leaders are here to do the work, to build the church. And they build the church by equipping the saints, by doing the actual work of ministry, and by building up the body of Christ. But what Paul is actually saying here, and we'll see this in the rest of the passage, it's the only way to understand this text, is that the pastors and shepherds, apostles and prophets exist to equip the saints so that they can do the ministry, so that they can build up the body of Christ. Okay? Do you see the difference in those two ideas? Practically, they look completely different. One says, I pay my pastor to do the ministry. We give at church to support his ministry. He is, his official job title is minister, 
right? He's the one who does the work. If I need to grow as a Christian, I need my pastors and only my pastors help to do so. You are the church, we are the leaders. That distinction is what that comma means when it's there. Another thing that it means, and this one, even in people who understand and apply this passage rightly seem to fall short of sometimes, is that the foci of ministry is still at the center of the leaders, but the direction of ministry is outward going and not inward, right? If we're equipping you for the ministry, that's an outward motion, and where does the ministry happen? It happens out there. And sometimes people get most of this passage right, but it still means I'm equipping you for my ministry. And so I make sure to make you help me. You see, too often the church has an MVP model of ministry. And so your job is just to fill the seats, and my job is to hit the home run. You know, you just fill the bases, and then I bring them all home, right? And it's very easy to read that, but notice he doesn't say for the work of my ministry or for the work of the leader's ministry. He says just for the work of ministry. And so the direction of the church implied here is that at the center are these leaders. And I like the word center better than top. Because if you look at the New Testament's understanding of leadership, you can't make a pyramid. You can't put leaders at the top and everybody else is standing beneath them. The idea is not fully and totally on authority, it's on responsibility. Okay? It's not most importantly that I rule over all of you, it's that I'm responsible for you. And those are related ideas. Okay? But the focus of leadership, as he's putting here, is better understood as a center. And it's our job, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints for your ministry. Okay? And so the idea here is completely different. The idea is that God has given you, each of you, a task. And that the primary role of leaders in the church, of teachers in the church, of pastors in the church, is to help you accomplish that task. And so what that means most obviously is, once again, the church is a we. Okay? The church is a we. We are the church. And so God's great plan for transformation in your life, you have a part to play it. It's collective in its nature. You are both the ministry and the minister. You are both the building and the builder. Now, listen to what he says here. Let's look a little bit closer. He says that the goal of these people is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, the primary way that all of these people, apostles, etc., do this is through the word, through the Bible, right? It's implied in their roles. Each one of these, the emphasis, the focus is on the Bible. It's on the proclamation, explanation, and application of the word. And so, Evangelists proclaim the gospel, and prophets uh, uh, proclaim God's word. Pastors uh, are called to teaching, to feed the sheep, to use the shepherding uh, metaphor that's implied there. Teachers teach the word, okay? And what that word does is it shapes you, it forms you, it helps you to be a minister. It equips you to do what God has called you to do. That's why Paul can say in full confidence that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's given you his word, an explanation of how human life is to work, of who he is, of what's available to you in Jesus Christ, and he's given you the church. Okay? I have never been able to forget this, but my friend Riley, who helped me start this church, um, he said once, looking at a passage just like this, that the Christian life is not better in community, it's made possible in community. And I've never been able to shake that idea. You see, Paul doesn't envision here the Christian life and growing as a Christian as an individual happening, as something you can do on your own, even if you do it on your own next to the person sitting next to you, Right? And this is really important because we live in a consumer culture, don't we? So the primary way we think about all sorts of things is consumeristic in nature. And so when we're together with a large group of people, most of the time, we're just there to get the same thing. 
right? You go to a movie theater to all see the same movie, but there's no community there, right? You go to a grocery store to get what you need, but if you do it here on Capitol Hill, you probably have your earbuds in, right? There's nothing more antisocial in, in a gesture than shopping with your earbuds in. It says, I'd rather be doing this online, right? Uh, that's how it is, and uh, this consumer concept very easily creeps into Christianity, doesn't it? And so we start to think of church in a way where I come to get what I need, and the church exists to give me what I need, and then I go my way, and that's the end. Listen, if you can fit your concept of church into Sunday, then you don't have a big enough and a broad enough idea of what church is. If you can fit your concept of church only into receiving and not an active participation, then your idea of church is not big enough for this passage. Okay, What he says here is that our job, what happens on Sunday mornings when we gather together, and this is only one of the things that happens on Sunday morning, is you get equipped to be the church, to do the ministry, to grow one another, to encourage one another, to love one another. Now, this is so important to me as a pastor for one primary reason. It's because I need you. And we live, once again, in a culture that has seen the consequence of when pastors aren't ministered to, aren't part of the ministry, live in this isolated bubble away from the people, and then surprise, surprise, struggle, and struggle quietly and silently until it boils to the surface, and then we get a scandal. The things that pastors struggle with are no different than the things that human beings struggle with, but because of this false philosophy, there's this elevation, and they don't get the reciprocity that's built into the church. I'll say this with full honesty and full confidence this morning. There are places where I don't understand God very well. There are places where I don't rightly see God very well, and the solution that God has given me in that is the same one he's given all of you. It's the church, okay? Because the truth is, we all are blind in particular places, but we're not all blind in the same places. Now, I want to be very clear here. When I say that, I'm not merely talking about experience. I'm definitely not talking about opinion, and I'm not even talking about perspective. What I'm talking about, the fact, is that God speaks to his church, okay? And so this is not a differing of, differing of opinions. In fact, we see here, notice um, notice verse 13, what's the goal here? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. This is not a diversifying and, uh, and a division into lots of different opinions. This isn't making room for all the differences. It's all growing, all unifying, all narrowing in our understanding of God into the right and proper understanding of God, okay? But nonetheless, I need you. I need your input in, your, in my life. I need to be encouraged. I need to be confronted. I need to be questioned. I need to be asked, how are things going? That's the nature of the church, okay? So, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Um, notice second, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, notice the metaphor Paul uses here for the church. He calls it the body. And this is a metaphor that Paul uses often. He says that the church is best understood as one body, one thing, made up of many members. And so in the same way that your body has fingers and toes and nose and ears, so also the church has that diversity of roles, that diversity of gifts and abilities. Each of us has a different part to play, but we have the same purpose. We're intimately connected. In one place, he says, if one part of the body hurts, the whole body mourns with it, right? If you uh, hit your finger with a hammer, you're sympathetic towards your finger, right? It's a natural part because that's how close the relationship is. What he's probably more likely saying in that passage is not just we should weep with those who weep, which he says elsewhere, but if one of us fails, it hurts the church, okay? If one of us isn't doing our role, then our whole body suffers for it, okay? Here we're talking about responsibility. Here we're talking about commitment. Okay? Now, we don't have formal membership in this church, at least not at the moment. Okay? But that doesn't mean we don't believe that the church should be committed. All of the metaphors, the 
the Bible uses for the church have this concept of permanency built right into it. Like it says, we are being built as a building, okay? Permanency. You don't just go, well, I'm going to remove my brick and go be a part of another building. Uh, that's, that's easier said than done. In the same way with the body, it, although sometimes, in rare circumstances, you may get a heart transplant, we don't just make that a natural and normal thing, like, hey, you want to switch hands with me? Right? The idea of permanency is built into it, but the reason is just because that's what community means. Okay? Our time here in modern America loves talking about community. We like to think of ourselves as tremendously social. But as soon as you understand or point out that commitment is part of community, people tend to head for the hills. What they want is people to be with them without any sort of responsibility, without any sort of confrontation, okay? But what community means is commitment. It means uh, for better or for worse. It means in the good and the bad. It means when times are easy and when times are hard, okay? And so that's the idea that's envisioned here in the body, but I want you to notice that he doesn't just leave it as some amorphous, undescribed, undefined body. Like we can look like however we want as long as we're together. What does he say here? He says to build it into what? The body of Christ. Okay? The person of Jesus Christ, his ministry on earth, his character gives shape to the ideal for the church. If you want to know what is God's will for my life, the greatest and easiest answer is to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's not just in, as individuals, many Jesus, which is what Christian, by the way, word means. It means Christ-like, a Christ-like, a, a small Christ is what it literally means, okay? Um, not just as individuals, but also collectively. Frankly, I find that to be a terrible relief, okay? Because because it's much more likely that we collectively are going to be Christ-like than any given one of us as individuals, okay? We balance out one another's weaknesses. We shave off one another's corners. Uh, we, like I said, are actually in process and in progress because people are speaking into our lives, so we're not just stuck being partially like Jesus, never to change, okay? God's whole point of this again, once again, is transformation, to see us grow into being more like Jesus. And so he starts here by giving us a picture of the ideal that the church should look and behave and have a character like Jesus's. And then he goes on and he paints the ideal even stronger. And so this is what he says in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. We've already talked about that. Until we all grow in our right and proper and frankly, because it's true, narrow understanding of who God is and what he has done and what he's calling us to do, right? We should all be getting a better and better, better understanding of doctrine. That's why we're doing the catechism, okay? There may be weeks where you come in and you're disgruntled by the way a doctrine is put. Even if the catechism is wrong, recognize that's a normal part of human life. If you can't willingly admit that you were wrong sometimes, then you cannot grow as a Christian. In fact, you cannot grow as a human being. You were done. You were stagnant. And it's pretty easy to recognize that you look back even three years ago on your life and you go, man, I can't believe how foolish I was, right? I can't believe this misunderstanding that I had, okay? That's a normal part of human life. And so if you want to know who God is, expect, expect to be wrong. Okay. But he says here, the unity of the faith, and then he says, and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, I want you to notice here that even though it is community, which means love, it is also truth. Right? That was implied by unity of the faith, but here it's really clear. How is it that we grow to be like Jesus? We know Jesus. We grow in our knowledge of him. We grow in our relationship with him. And that, once again, is the goal that Paul sets. And the simple truth is, right now, you don't know Jesus as well as you could. In fact, Paul, is going to, or Paul has prayed back in chapter 3, one of my favorite prayers in the New Testament, that he wants us to grow in the knowledge of the love of God, which he says surpasses understanding. 
There's always more to learn. There's always more depth. You may have experienced it, but you haven't dug to its depths yet, or its height, or its length, or its width. He picks four dimensions to express how much there is to know in God's love. Okay? And so he says here, the knowledge of God. Um, and then notice he puts it in one more term, going back to that idea of body. He says, to mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he says here, right now you're just Christians. You're little Christ. But he wants you to mature. He wants you to grow into the full embodied reflection of who Jesus is. One of the things, uh, one of the metaphors that Paul uses here is immaturity, right? He parallels it with, with, um, with human growth as we all experience it. And so when you were a child, you had some growing to do. In the same way, when you become a Christian, the metaphor the Bible likes to use for that conversion is birth. Right? And so you become a spiritual babe in Christ. Uh, the letter of Hebrews actually uh, extends that metaphor and says when you first become a Christian, you take milk, just like a baby does, and you have to grow until you can eat for yourself and take on the real meat of the faith. Right, And so the idea here is that we are immature, and God wants to bring us to maturity. And how does he do that? He does it through us. Okay, Now, what is the alternative? Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here's one of the things that I've noticed about human life. Okay? If you don't have a method or a means of making decisions, then to some degree the decisions will be made for you. And you can feel completely in control but a wide-angle lens, look at your life, you're just tossed by the waves, right? And so now you're doing this, and now you're doing that, and now you're over here, and now you're over there, right? That's just a nature of human life. And it doesn't say here, just grow up and make a plan, right? It says that the church and the word, God's people and God's word, collectively gives you the contours of making proper and right decisions, collectively gives you the shape of where your life is headed. And without that, you're just a child in an ocean storm, right? You're just helpless and under the impact of whatever's happening. And the next thing he says is by every wind of doctrine, which means that your beliefs and your behavior will be primarily shaped by whatever's going on around you. Right? And so you're just a kite in the wind, and so everybody is saying this, and you go right along with it. The Bible, uh, the Bible proclaims to be the authoritative word of God. And so that means anytime anything is said out of your mouth, out of a politician's mouth, out of a philosopher's mouth, out of our general culture's mouth, it always needs to be filtered through the Bible. Okay? Now, simply put, if you don't have that critical thinking, then the conclusions you come to are nothing more than prejudice. And our culture is actually at a time where, where there's so much prejudice in our thinking that it, it's starting to break down in its consistency. And so we're coming to and affirming different contrary truths, and we seem to be okay with that. Okay? But the idea here is, is simply put, you need the church. And once again, I'm not saying you need me. I'm definitely not saying all you need in life is a sermon. Listen to me. You cannot grow as a Christian through a podcast. Not, not a podcast alone. In fact, I would say that the idea that Paul presents here is so inherently relational that if you don't have a relationship with your pastors and teachers and leaders, then, then you're not really getting the full benefit of that. I'll tell you why in just a second. But... But the idea here is you need the church and we as a church need you. God has particularly and specifically gifted you in a way that serves the other members of this church. Okay? Here's how this works out for us as a congregation. It means that we, we as a church try and do things together and we try and do it collectively. Okay? Let me unpack both of those ideas. We really want anything that it means to do the work of the ministry, to be the church, to be together work, okay? 
And so it's not just you are the audience and the ministry is happening up here. It's not just there are some people who do the ministry and we support their ministry with our prayers and with our cash. It's how can we do this together? And everything in our church, we have just run through this filter. And most of it was already there. But here's what it means really practically. It it means that home groups are super important to us. Okay? Because the togetherness that's implied by this passage, the word ministry of one to another, the love and relationship that is required for us to be one body, you can't fit into an hour and a half. You can't conform into a room of 70 people. You need people who actually are known and known by you. There has to be something closer than that. People who see enough of your life to speak into it. It means co-participation, not just on Sundays, but in every day of our life. And so a good deal of what it means to be the church for us happens in the context of a home group. And for us, a home group is not just another meeting or another Bible study that's smaller in nature. There are some advantages there. For the most part, our home groups spend their evening praying together, which is great, but they also take whatever passage we've been looking at on Sunday and they discuss it. Now, I'll tell you what, I think discussion is a better form of communication. I'm all sold on the Socratic method. I I really believe in this idea that people need to be brought through question and answer to an understanding of a truth. Why don't we do that on Sundays? Because you cannot have a discussion with 70 people. As soon as you break about 10, you have a discussion with four and an audience of eight. That's just inherent human nature, okay? Because not all of us are going to speak up all the time. And some of us, it doesn't matter, we're going to speak up, right? I know that category very well. Um, but, but one of the great things about home groups is it gives you a place to ask your questions. It gives you a place, uh, not only that, but for specific application. You may have noticed that I don't spend a good deal of time with application. And the reason is because I have no idea what most of you are going through, what most of your lives are like, what it looks like to push the truths of Scripture through the context of your actual life. Home groups exist to help navigate that. Okay? But that's not all. For us, home groups are how we do everything the church is supposed to do, and here's where the changes are coming, okay? Uh, Last year, we did a serve day at Lowell Elementary, and actually, it was pretty cool. Um, People from our church showed up on a Sunday afternoon and did a whole bunch of things that made the school a better place. We just literally and fully and totally loved our neighbors. But about a home group's worth of people came out to the event. Which doesn't surprise me, and I wasn't upset about it, but a home group could have done the same thing and done it better. It would have involved full participation. The same people are doing life together are now serving their neighbors together. Uh, There would have been a natural relationship with the school that was integrated at that group level, because I know the school better, but none of you do, right? Uh, There would have been a natural next step. Uh, All of these things would have been better, and so... Our goal this year is for the home groups to be the primary way we love our neighbors so that we're doing it together and so that we're actually doing it, okay? Too often we talk about the church doing stuff and it means a small fragment of the church doing stuff. And not only that, but a random fragment of who happens to be available and finds it appealing. Whereas a home group is life together and that means loving your neighbor together, okay? In the same way, uh, in the same way, we have recognized the fact that God hasn't called us as a church to create a children's ministry to raise the children of people in the church. He's called us as a church to raise the children together, right? And children's ministry has a natural tendency to become consumeristic, to be viewed as babysitting or as, uh, as teaching in the same way that we do otherwise. But really, What God has called the children's ministry to do is to equip the saints for the ministry of raising their kids. And so now we are doing this together, and we've invited all the parents to participate regularly, monthly, during the service in children's ministry, and to have a role in teaching their kids. And I'm really excited about this, because I know what it's like, even as a pastor, to be a parent and not know how to teach your kids the Bible not know how to lead your kids in prayer. But this gives a place to learn that, to exemplify that, to do that in a small setting. And I can't tell you how thrilled I am about the idea of doing the same catechism that we're doing and a kid going, hey, Dad, earlier you were talking about the Holy Spirit. I've got a question. I love that. 
But the reason we're doing it is not because we're having a hard time staffing the children's ministry. It's because what ministry looks like is to do it together. Okay? So, I want you to notice another thing here. He says, instead of being tossed to and fro, instead of being just subject to the times and subject to things and running as individuals in different directions, he says that we're to be the church. And then notice what he says in contrast, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, the second half of that he's already laid out, right? Grow up, mature, fullness and stature of Christ. How does it happen? He says, speaking the truth in love. Okay, now I want you to notice that means that our collective ministry as a church reflects the collective ministry of the five leaders that he presents at the beginning, right? It's inherently word-based. One of the reasons that this is the case is because human beings are created in the image of God and God speaks, right? You only get two verses into the Bible before God opens his mouth and stuff happens. We're created in the same way, and so what we do a good deal of the time is we talk, and we're inherently counsel givers, right? People naturally tell you what's going on, and you tell them what to do. You ask them questions. And so the way the church works is inherently word-based. When you do your devotions and you read the Bible for yourself, recognize that you also have an opportunity to share what you learn with the people around you. In fact, I would say you have a responsibility to do so. When people are being uh, stubborn and hard-necked against the truth of the word, it's our responsibility to bring the Bible to bear on their circumstances and situation. Speak the truth. Okay? But notice here it says speak the truth in love. And that means two very clear things. Okay? When we use the word in there, it implies one of two possibilities. And if you look at the whole Bible, it's clearly both here. The first is motivation. Speak the truth in love means from a motivation of love, with their best interest in mind. Okay? The Bible can be seen like a scalpel. But a scalpel in the hands of a madman and a doctor is a very different thing. Right? And you can use the truth just to slash and gash, to try and shape people into your own image, to try and take the offensive things that you find and try and get rid of them. You can use it to attack and keep people on the defensive. In fact, you can use it to hide your own weaknesses, right? Because as long as you're on the offense, there's no chance, no danger of you being on the defense. And so oftentimes the people with the greatest hidden sin issues are the most critical of other people because it keeps the, keeps the light off of them and on someone else, okay? But when it says here, speaking the truth in love, it means the motivation of sharing God's word, the motivation of speaking into someone else's life is because we desire their best, okay? Now, the second thing implied by this word in is context. And this is, this is something that I think is so true and so important. Truth has to be wrapped in relationship to be received, okay? This is why many of us have had... Um, had uh, minds changed by books, but lives changed by people, right? And it can be the self-same truth, but when that truth is in the context of somebody who we know we can trust, of somebody who presents that truth in a loving way, of somebody who follows up in the presentation of that truth and gives support and accountability and prayer, it's a completely different game, is it not? The way the church is supposed to work is inherently relational, okay? Not just speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in the context of a loving relationship. This is why I'm so... I'm trying to do this without bashing it, because I don't want to bash it. But this is why I think we're seeing a failure in street evangelism. Why we're seeing a failure in stranger evangelism. Okay? It's because you just have a bare-naked truth presented and packaged to go. But what we've seen in our church beats that is relational evangelism, where not only do they hear the truth, but they see it in action. And they can, over time, ask their questions and find answers. And over time, there's lots of mini-conversions, okay? The truth is, lots of people aren't against Christianity, they're against Christians. And so the greatest way to get them to explore Christianity is to surprise them on what a Christian is, okay? We call that the evangelistic sucker punch, okay? <laughs> 
you want to get people to double take so that they'll hear again for the first time. Guys, this is not my idea. This is Jesus' idea. He says this in John chapter 17, by this they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. He says the lens, the interpretive lens, the way that people validate and understand the gospel is through the loving relationships of the church. In fact, if you're not a Christian with us this morning and you're just exploring Christianity, a home group is not for people who have become Christians. It's a place where I would encourage you to get involved. It's a place where I'd encourage you to be because there's so much of Christianity that you just won't see or experience on a Sunday. Okay? And so he says here, it's speaking the truth in love. And if you separate into one half or the other, you will actually lose one half or the other. Okay? If you say the truth is more important than love, eventually your truth will be untrue because the Bible has a lot to say about love. And what you'll find is an imbalance where they'll be adamant on particular verses and condemning of culture and they leave love your neighbor completely off, right? And that's not true. The Bible says just as much about caring for the poor and stopping oppression as it does about sexual ethics and the importance of doctrine. But if you ignore love, you ignore truth. In the same way, in the same way, if you try and reduce it down to love and you ignore truth, inherently your love becomes unloving. Because, because you're not telling people things that are really true. You're not telling th people things that really have bearing on their life. You're not explaining because, frankly, love without truth is just self-love. It says, I love you enough to let you be around, but I don't love you enough for you to be mad at me because I told you the truth. That's usually the motive, okay? And so there's love in love without truth. It's just self-love. But loving another always means caring enough to speak up. And so they go together, and they cannot be separated. It's the reason why on our signs it says truth and love. Okay? That's the ministry that God has given the church. That's what we feel called to be. Rather, speaking the truth in love, verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part is working properly. Do you see how Paul understands this concept? He basically says that you are essential to the church. Not just me, not just Nick and Matt, not just Emma and children's ministry, you were essential to the church. And by doing your part, we all grow. Okay. By speaking the truth in love, we all grow. Maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you haven't been a Christian very long and you feel afraid to speak because you don't know very much. You have a part to play. And the Bible says that God, through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, has given you a gift inherent in your salvation, a place in the church to serve, and if you're not willing to reach out, to step out, to try it, to find where that is, and to operate in it, we're the, all the weaker for it. We need one another. And so, here, when we each work properly, what does it say? So that it builds itself up in love. Okay. Now, once again here, in love implies what we've already seen, truth in love. It means in relationship but it also very clearly speaks of goal. Because when it says here, growing up in love, that just means looking like Jesus, right? Jesus was the human embodiment of the fact that God is love. His entire life's purpose was to demonstrate and to live out the love of God. In fact, so much so that he came as a human sacrifice. He came to die because God so loved the world. Jesus is the embodiment. He's the proof. He's the physicality of God's character, which is love. And so growing to be like Jesus means growing in love. Okay? That's where we're headed as a church. Size doesn't matter to me as much as depth of love. Okay? Uh, numbers of anything doesn't matter to me as much as growing in love. And I gotta be honest, this is the most loving church I've ever been a part of. I'm not a crier, but I have cried more because of the love of this church than any other relationship in my life. I love this church. I feel loved by this church. I want other people to be a part of this church to experience the love that I've experienced here. But the simple truth is it's because we've tried to follow this reality of together, collectively, bringing our own gifts and our own callings and our own ministry to bear, speaking the truth 
in love, in relationship with one another, not just pressing into what God has for us, but pressing into one another's lives so that we can walk those roads together. That is God's calling. That's God's mission for the church. That's God's means of transformation. And it shouldn't surprise us because the greatest proclamation that God makes is that God is personal. He's so personal that God is triune. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been in a loving relationship for all of eternity. What some theologians have called a brilliant dance, right? A constant exchanging of love and relationship. And so what he's invited us into is inherently relational. He's invited you into that dance. He's invited us into that dance. And he's given us this time on earth in this context, in this neighborhood, to dance together so that we would grow into the image of God so that we would become a better reflection of who Jesus is, so that we would know him. And in being known, in, in knowing him, we would be transformed into his image. Let's pray. Father, this is such an important and such a freeing truth. I also get excited about it because I feel like it's, it's something that's so lacking in our culture. There were many times and ages where there really was close-knit community in households, in neighborhoods, in entire little towns, but the nature of the growth and the busyness and the commercialization, the nature of these things is so isolating. One of the most profound things we can do to show our culture the gospel is just to be a loving family but we don't always love rightly. And just because we know what it's like to have a mom and a dad and a brother and a sister doesn't mean we know how to love one another. We have to learn that from you. And I thank you, Lord, that the ministry that you've given our church is to minister to one another. That the building you're making in our church brick by brick is not just made up of us, but we're also simultaneously called to the work. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do the Christian life alone but instead you've called us to do it together. That you didn't just save us as individuals, you adopted us into your family, you gave us brothers and sisters, you called us to do life together. I pray that we would see in 2017 more of this transformation, that by the end of the year we would be closer to one another, that we would be closer to you, that we would be closer to the ideal that Paul lays out here, the fullness of the stature of Christ. pray this in your name. Amen.